So, my name is David Siddons and I'm president of the David Siddons Group and this is our first podcast. This is an unnamed podcast because we haven't come up with a name yet. We're working on that. I'm sitting here with a good friend of mine, Drew Loringer. Drew is a mortgage broker here in Miami. Drew, yes, welcome to our Thank very you. first podcast. Appreciate um, it. So, first of all, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself what you do, how long you've been doing it, what space you work in, and then we're kind of going to get into the get into it. Absolutely, man. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. This is actually um, very exciting. Uh, and we're here in your office in Coral Gables. Yes, yeah, so. we are. We're uh, it, This is where the magic happens. <laughs> this is a beautiful, beautiful space. Uh, my name is Drew Loringer. Um, I have been doing mortgages in Miami here for about six and a half years. Uh, I work for a brokerage, Miami's best brokerage, in my opinion, of course, um, as a minority partner called Millennium Mortgage. Uh, and so our home office is based out of Davie, Florida. Uh, we specialize all throughout Miami, Broward, and the Brickell area. And um, yeah, man, I'm just excited to be here. This is cool. <laughs> so we, we actually, we met in a rather unusual circumstance and became friends. And as we start talking, we're both what we would call eternal students. And the whole reason yeah. of doing this is to educate the markets and educate in the process, explore the conversation which really needs to be had right now. And this became the first podcast because we're in the month of May in 2022. And we've just seen rates uh, get hiked and it's creating a lot of waves in the, in the real estate market. Um, I think what I'd like to do is I'd like you to start with what happened in the last five years. Like, let's take us back to 2017. And then obviously we went through... And then we had an incredible run, like crazy run from 20 to 22 um, with rates being really, really low. Where were we and where are we now, Drew? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, it really started a little bit before that. You know, if we looked at the beginning of the decade, um, you know, rates were in the low to mid threes. Uh, it wasn't until after the presidential election in what was that, 2016? Got that. Um, and so we, we started seeing the rates rise. Uh, you know, they slightly rose. It wasn't by much. It was about 3.625 all the way up to, in some cases for investors, it was as high as the fives, um, depending on if, you know, the occupancy type. So if it was an investor occupant, they were getting hit on the rates much like they are now. Now, and the difference is in today's climate, it's obviously significantly higher. Investors are getting hit. Um, you know, the, the rate sheet hits are hard for investor occupants. Um, and primary residences there in the, you know, the mid fives right now. And so we've seen really in the last five years, it was kind of stagnant until COVID. We saw a slight drop. And now that the world's back in business after they were printing all of this money in an effort to kind of combat inflation and because of some of the issues with supply chain, we're seeing rates rise again. And I mean, this is something that has happened through history. Um, and so it's not a surprise that they're using this as a methodology to fight the inflation. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, it's the consumer that gets hit. Yeah, and, and they're getting hit right now. And I think they're yeah. starting to feel it uh, because it's been this really great run and rates have been really low and people have enjoyed and been obviously driving to buy real estate. And, we, you know, we can see the Fed trying to put the brakes on things. Yeah. Right now, exactly what, what what is the rate level today as of like, what are we now? First of June, yeah, literally? Yeah, yeah, first of June. Okay. So the first of June. Um, so where I'm seeing rates are for primary residents, uh, single family homes, you know, they're in the low to mid fives. Um, when you start going into condos, which most of our market is here in Miami, they get a hit on the rate sheet. It could be as high as a half point. So now we're talking, you know, the higher levels of the fives, sometimes creeping into even, you know, 5.99 to six. 
So that's where we're seeing like from today's perspective. And this is again for, um, you know, your typical borrower that has over a 700 FICO. If you have under a 720 in this market or even a 700, you're really getting hit hard. The, the rate sheets, they're, they're not favorable to those that have less than a 700 FICO. Uh, is what we're seeing. Now, um, a lot of our deals are in the non-QM space because Miami is Miami. So a lot of these borrowers either don't have tax returns, they don't, you know, they write everything off or they're buying non-warrantable condos, condo hotels. Uh, They've got some peculiar situation that doesn't fit in line with how the rest of the world operates, or at least the United States. Um, And so we end up seeing a lot of them are in the, in, you know, the sevens right now. Whereas six weeks ago, these were in the high fours. So I deal with a lot of um, high-level real estate, the high-end real estate, the yeah. luxury, the prime and the ultra-prime. Um, and those guys, obviously, you know, single family, they've got great scores. They've got really a lot of liquidity. Yeah. Um, right now, if they're going to be paying, what, around five and a half, and it could be a little bit high, close to six, where do you think it's going to go? I mean, where do you see it going in the next 12 months? If I had to guess, um, you know, and again, I don't have a crystal ball. If I did, it, it would be great, obviously. Um, but, you know, from what I've seen and kind of looking at some of the charts, I would assume that the rates aren't going to come down for a while. Yeah. I would assume that they're going to go up a little bit this year. You know, the Fed's already talked about having another two rate hikes um, at minimum. However, I think in preparation for that, the rate sheets are kind of baked in right now. They've baked in some of that expectancy. So I think we'll probably see a slight rise. I would assume we'll be in the sixes, you know, maybe even as high as the sevens by the end of the year. But um, I think we've seen such a dramatic increase in such a short period of time that it should taper off, in my opinion, and I think level out. That's what I would assume would happen. Um, however, again, it is quite possible that we could be in the sixes as even as high as the sevens by the end of the year. When, when they brought out the last hike and, and as things are happening now uh, were you surprised by that being in the industry was it something that took you back did you think they did it right do you think the feds got it right do you think they're getting it right that's a really good question um i didn't see it happening this quickly at all i didn't see it um you know it's it's different because again i do a lot of non-qm stuff again with wealthy buyers um you know jumbo super jumbo and a lot of these clients they were already in a space that is traditionally seen as having higher interest rates than your traditional conventional loan uh, because it's typically a private bank that's financing these things where i saw the massive hit wasn't necessarily on conventional side although you know when you're looking at it it is a dramatic increase the non-QM side got hit bad. I mean, within six weeks to see and rates what go is a non-Q, Just to be clear what a non-QM sure. side is. So basically, if it does not fit into Fannie or Freddie Mae guidelines, mm-hmm. um, it is a non-QM loan. So uh, conventional loan limits, you know, they're 640 for the county, roughly. Uh, and so if you go above that, you're in the jumbo space. Now, a lot of conventional lenders are doing jumbo loans. But what happens when you don't qualify because you don't, you know, you're writing everything off on your business. You're self-employed. You're not a W-2 borrower. And most of our very wealthy clients are not W-2 employees. These are business owners. These are people that have very successful corporations, a lot of employees, a lot of write-offs. So traditionally, these people do not qualify with a conventional loan. A conventional loan is a QM product or a qualified mortgage. A non-conventional, non-typical you know, typical loan is a non-qualified mortgage. It's something that typically only our private banks um, are offering. Now, most borrowers come to people like myself who are brokers because we have access to all these lenders with these, you know, hundreds of varying products that they can't get at Wells Fargo or Chase or Bank of America or even by their wealth management team. So, yeah, I mean, we saw a dramatic increase in rates on the non-QM side. 
Um, but again, we've seen, you know, a, a significant hike. What I have seen occur, to answer your question, um, where I, th- I think the Fed did get it right in a sense, because they're really trying to combat inflation, and they're trying to taper back, you know, the borrower's ability to to get financing because they want to kind of reduce the demand, right? Um, the problem, however, is what I saw a real impact in was people who were purchasing as a primary residence. People who are purchasing as a primary, um, although they're not getting hit as hard on the rate as investors, they are deterred from purchasing in this market right now because their payments have risen dramatically. Their buying power is reduced, especially if they're in the you know two fifty to six fifty or seven hundred thousand dollar range. Um, I know that that's not your or my typical clientele, um, but those people got hit hard. And it's like really the lower and middle class that I saw impacted. What seems to be one of the big things that I look at with interest rates, and I think it's really important to understand, is that when you're weighing up where markets are moving, the psychology of the masses can affect the few. So it might not be relevant to you, but what ultimately we see, and it's come down the media pipeline already, is a lot of negative press, if you want to call it that. A lot of um, less than bullish dialogue about where our market is and where it's going. And there's two sides to the coin. And we're seeing both sides of the conversation. I'm seeing on one side people saying, no, no, it's great. We have a shortage of houses. We have a high level of demand. Um, We we need to satisfy mass migration specific to Miami, people coming in. And then the other side, you've got this, in truth, this crazy run where we've seen like 27% increase in the value of homes last year. And I think the year before was probably very, very similar. So now you've got uh, owners who are looking at properties and seeing the values of their home go up exponentially. Uh, And then the buyers looking at those and saying, oh my God, like it's 50% more than it was two years ago. And they have a need to buy. But when things move, they just seem to, to me right now, be looking at properties and saying, you know what, I just don't think I want to go over asking price. I don't want to be 10% over asking. I don't want to be 5% over asking. I don't want to get into crazy bidding wars. Absolutely. The realities that we see come from the changing rates is that group psychology, which gets affected. So when people are calling you and they're coming to you in terms of the activity, and again, let's look at the luxury end. Have you seen the number of mortgage applications at the high end of the market start to soften? Or is it just business as usual? I mean, to be quite honest, it's business as usual. Uh, where I have seen a reduction is, again, in the primary residence, single family home, you know, buyers under 700000 I have seen a dramatic reduction in those applications come in. Um, I'm also in a very different scenario than most loan officers here in the city. I would say 80% of my buyers come to me under contract already. So um, it's, it's a very, I have a different situation than I would, I would imagine most loan officers here because they're pre-approving someone and then they're going and shopping, then they find a place, they go under contract, then they get the deal, right? Yeah. Um, I would say the majority of my business already comes to me under contract. And what's crazy is especially in this market, I would say seven out of 10 of my contracts come to me as cash contracts and they're waiving contingencies on everything, waiving appraisal waiving inspection, they're waiving finance contingency, everything. These are cash contracts. And I have had to close people that did not qualify in hard money loans because, you know, 12 month bridge loans because they did not qualify and they didn't even care to go get qualified before putting something under contract. And I've seen that more and more now than I've ever seen it before, which is insane to me. It's wild. I, I, it's good you read this now. I was going to raise this question. Yeah. 
later on, but you, you've raised it now, so I think let, let's get into this. Um, the behavior of buyers coming in and the amount of pressure, because if I look at my numbers and I look at my charts, sure. our inventory is still very, very low. And I still yeah. think there's a lot of pressure on buyers who say, you know what, if I want to be in a running chance of getting this property, I've got to get in my offer right now. Yeah. And I've, I got to a stage where I was seeing buyers would call me and say, you know what, I want to buy that house, but I want to make it subject to finance and subject to appraisal. I'm like, you might as well not even bother. Just don't even, don't even bother writing the offer yeah. because you've got more chance of tying your arms behind your back <laughs> and beating Mike Tyson. And most, of the, and most of the seller's agents, they know that this property is not going to appraise. They know. Most of them are cash and they, they know they're aware because the banks are still playing catch up yeah. as well. And that segues into, uh, I guess, another question which is the appraisals and how they're handling things. And oh are, they, are they behind this? Are they in front of this? Are they getting it all wrong? I mean, this is a probably a pretty contentious issue yeah. for a lot of buyers and sellers. Oh, for sure. Man, I have had more issues with appraisals than you could imagine. I'm sure you give you me an Give me a story. Give me an example. Man. Okay, so um, I just had a unit last month at the W, okay. Tower 3 of the Icon Brickle. Um, the appraisal, what was the purchase? I think the purchase price was eight fifty, and the appraisal came 250,000 short, which is insane. Yeah, for, so for, especially more for, than 20%. Yeah. 25%. So, um, I mean, the buyer ended up, look, this guy waived his appraisal contingency and his finance contingency. So he brought the money to close. Yeah. Uh, if he had not been able to do that, we would have had to come up with some other type of scenario. I mean, we, we try not to, I never just reject a deal. You know, especially if they're under contract, their earnest money deposit is my money, basically. Like, I'm trying to protect it at all costs. Uh, and also, I want my agents to get paid. And I just want the deal to go through. So, we really will fight to make a deal happen. But it has been very difficult where this is not the first scenario. I mean, this was the, mo the more dramatic one, especially based on that purchase price. To see something come in a quarter million short is insanity. Um, and But it's not always that dramatic. Um, you know, sometimes it's 50000 Sometimes it's 100000 Sometimes it's seventy. I would say out of all the deals that I've done in the last four months, maybe three of them came back with an actual appraisal at or above purchase price. Uh, and the reason why this is occurring is because these appraisers base their comparables off of closed sales. Some of them date as far back as a year ago. If you look at the reports, you're using a comp from a year ago. It was a completely different environment. How can you justify using a comparative analysis on a property that closed, even if it was of similar structure, square footage, room, bed, bath count, et cetera, how are you gonna use something from a year ago? And that's what a lot of them are doing. So what I've had to do on almost every deal is I've had to go back to my buyer's agent or now I just prep them. Didn't, you, I, didn't you say to me that you, like, you threw out or you contested like nine out of 10 appraisals that came through, yeah. you, you were fighting them? Oh no, 100%. So I prep my buyer's agents in advance give me comps or have them prepared for the appraiser when they come. Yeah. And then what I end up having to do is I have to um, send in revision requests for every single appraisal, send them comps, get into arguments with the appraisal management company. I mean, it could delay the deal by two weeks, just the whole process. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've had the same happen with me and my clients. Yeah. And I have a theory, and I don't know if this theory is true or not, so you can sure. validate it. But my theory was this, the banks have a very clear framework. They're like, we've got to work within these confined spaces. And the confined spaces are like a 20% variance of size of lot, size of house, within a certain geographical area. And because the, the targets are moving target right now, yeah. and the market was moving, if you break it up and say, okay, so market moved up 27% last year. What does that break down per month? It's what, about two and a bit percent per month? Mm -hmm. Two and a half percent every single month, the value is going up. So if you go back six months, 
you know, all of a sudden you're at 15%. Yeah. You're a 15% difference yeah. and 15% is massive. I and mean, that's you, what you, makes up the difference. That's why we're seeing these appraisals come short. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so um, like you said, the banks really operate on a checkbox system, especially a lot of these private lenders, even the conventional lenders, what they're doing when they box these loans together is they put them into a mortgage-backed security of similar products, sizes, loan amounts, credit scores, et cetera, put them in a mortgage-backed security and they sell it on a secondary market. So that's why someone, you know, you might close with, chase and then six months later you end up with wells fargo and all of a sudden you got a letter in the mail and you're like i have a new lender why well it's because you got sold with a bunch of other loans so what happens is in their auditing of these on the on the secondary market they're going to pull loans at random and if those loans do not meet that specific criteria and meet the check boxes they're gonna have a big issue um that's when loans can get called back the lender has to pay back if it's within six months even the broker has to pay back their commission and it's just like a mess so the lenders are following their guidelines and they are trying to meet certain criteria regardless of how, you know, outdated or arbitrary they may seem. This is what they're doing is they're checking the box. So I just had a situation this morning where um, I, do, I do a deal called a debt service coverage ratio loan. It's like my, I market it as my Airbnb loan because all of my Airbnb investors use it. So we do not require income documents whatsoever. It's a no income loan, basically. Um, and the reason why is because it is, uh, it's qualified almost how a commercial deal is, where the, the property actually qualifies itself instead of you as the client. So when we send out an appraiser, they not only assess the appraised value of the property, but they also assess what it could rent at on a 12-month long-term lease. Now, as long as that, that rent uh, or projected is a dollar higher than the mortgage, it's 20% down. The rate is whatever we quoted them at the beginning. If it comes under, they have to do 25% down and they usually get hit like a half point on the rate. Doesn't that sound like, you know, back, everyone's seen <laughs> the movie, The Big Short. Yeah. And everyone goes back to like 2007, 2008, when people were borrowing money that really had no business borrowing money, they couldn't pay it back. Now we're talking about potentially a situation where someone is, Borrowing money, not of how much they can pay back, Correct. but assuming that the rent is going to cover them. Now, that's fine if the rent does, but if the market shifts and people stop paying that level of rent, does that cause problems? Oh, 100%. And I think, you know, I, I talk to my team about it all the time. We, we believe if there is going to be some type of bubble in this arena, it may truly come from this specific area. Yeah, because there's there's a lot of cash still flowing floating around in the system, and and again, you know, I'm a big follower of Ray Dalio. His principles. People have known me for years who have been reading my reports, and again, I always lean into the human behavior, and I try to understand understand why people are doing what they're doing, what sure. is driving them, what's, what's changing their actions, and when I see investment behavior and investor class behavior, and when I see liquidity, and right now, because again, tying into this, because of our stock market being so frothy and, and, and volatile and people stepping back and saying, you know what, I'm taking my money out. I, I took all my money out of the markets. I was like, you know what, I'm done with this. I don't have the stomach to take these kind of hits. Yeah. I'd rather be able to be in a system whereby I can kind of see what's happening. I can read my markets much better. And sure. I, again, I sell real estate for a living, so it's much easier to do that. But then when you take the money out and it's sitting in the bank and then you're looking at inflation, that's, you know, 7% plus, yeah. and you start to think to yourself, Christ Almighty, if the cost of a uh, loaf of bread or some milk or gas or anything else is going up, then then I'm actually losing money right now. Absolutely. So I really want to put it to work. And, and we've seen a lot of people investing and running into the, the real estate investment space 
especially with Miami, because there's so much migration here. So many people need homes. Not everybody wants to buy. Not everyone is ready to buy because they're trying to acclimate themselves to a city that they don't really know that well. Um, There's been this new influx of investors trying to buy a product off high rental returns. And that is like the condo space and the Airbnb space. That's really been a big one. The Airbnb space, which is something that we spoke about. Yeah. Um, on the phone. Take me through that. Take me through that whole Airbnb principle. For those who don't know and are watching this, yeah, yeah. Um, what is driving that right now and, and how could this shake up? Yeah, so I do a lot of these Airbnb deals, a lot. I would say the majority of my deals are well over a million single family homes with a pool, Coconut Grove, the Gables, Miami Shores. Miami Shores are a little less, but um, you know, I, I'm doing nothing but Airbnbs right now. I mean, the W, Fountain Blue, all of these buildings that allow for short-term rentals. Which ones do allow Airbnb? Because a lot of people ask me, like, and I, I don't fully know. I have to get into it. Yeah. But give me, like, five buildings so, that let you Airbnb. Sure. So um, I've done a – so there's a Brickle Bay Club I've done, the W. Uh, we've got – there's a couple buildings in Midtown – the opera is not really doing the short term anymore. They're doing month to month. However, there is kind of a workaround that I can't really get into, but I do have <laughs> clients that, that are doing it at the opera. Um, and then a lot of the condo hotels. So we've, again, I mentioned the W, but we also have the W on the beach. We've got the Satai, um, you know, we've got uh, Fountain Blue. Uh, I've done most of these condo hotels. They do require a larger down payment, you know, so like, whereas a Fannie Mae approved building, which there are very little of, is only requiring 5% or even sometimes 3% down. These are requiring 30 I can sometimes get away with doing 25% down, but you got to pay to play with these buildings because the banks see them as a higher risk for exactly what we're discussing. So um, what I've seen drive this huge Airbnb craze is kind of like the phone a friend mentality where it's like I was on the, bu- I was on the phone with my buddy and he's making $40,000 a month in net profits off of this Airbnb property. How the hell do I do this? And I tell them, oh, well, you need 20% down as long as you own a property, I can do this, you know, this debt service coverage ratio loan. We don't even have to look at your income. We can close it in the name of an LLC. We can protect you from any types of, you know, issues. We can limit your liability. Um, you can open up a bank account. You can kind of structure the whole thing like a business, right? Open a bank account for the house. Okay. So your rents are going from Airbnb into the bank account. You're paying your mortgage from the bank account. You can write everything off from there. So it's literally structured as a business. It's very enticing. Um, and so these people, they're like, okay, well, I need 20% down. The majority of them, to be completely frank, can only afford maybe five or 10. So they get all their buddies together. They got six or seven buddies. They put it under someone's name, you know, that's on the deal. And they're all just structuring their finances together in order to buy these things. I have seen this more times than you can imagine this month. So it's and a lot- group of young professionals. I would say if I had and to, they're all back. Like I, I I'm trying to imagine the guys who are doing man, this. I'm just seeing a bunch of crypto kids running around it's, coming up with illusions of grandeur. This is what it is. This really? Is, yeah. I mean, there's also a lot of young oh professionals God. that are actually making good money, W two or they're self employed. Um, but I I would say like fifty to sixty percent of these Airbnb situations that I do, if not more, uh, can comprise of these types of situations where people are putting a you know joint venture agreement together. They're all going in on a house. And, uh, you know, they might not even qualify for the DSCR program. So, so they're going like, hard money. So it's like, I don't want to have a proper job. I want to set up my business as an Airbnb. Let's run out there and buy it. And I, I've seen it in the Grove. Like Coconut oh, Grove yeah. 
it grows it, crazy. It was nuts. I, I had a personal experience myself where I uh, was building my own house and, and I was in a, in, a, in a gap between moving into the new home and, and going out from the old home in about a, a week to 10 days I needed. So I called a guy that I knew in the yeah. Grove and I said, um, you want to rent your house out to me? And he was like, well, I'm doing Airbnb. And I was like, oh, that's, that's good. And then as we start talking, he bought the house. I, I think the market value in the house at the time was like $2 million. Sure. Um, maybe when he bought it, it was two. And, and then it's worth like maybe probably about 2.75 now. I said, how much are you making? And he said to me, he said, David, I'm getting like, I said, how much are you going to charge me? And he said, well, I'll charge you, I'll, I'll be a little nicer to you. I'll charge you a little bit less than what I'm charging everyone else. And I was like, well, what's that? And he said, like, $13,000 for the week. I'm like, 13 grand for the week? <laughs> so how much, you. how much are you making a month? No, and, that's what it is. And, it, and it, he said it was booked, like after a month. in advance. You, you book months in advance. So I look at this, and this to me, this starts to drive the home prices up. Because then you've got other people in the area who are wanting to buy homes as a primary yeah. residence. And of course, these, these, these houses, not only, not only are they making the money on the Airbnb, but the value of the home went up. Oh, dramatically. So you're making like 40 grand a month on your $2 million asset. Yeah. And then it went from 2 million to 3 million. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. And your payment is on something like that between, well, not with the rates, but you're talking like eight to 12, 13,000 a month, right? Sometimes 14, um, depending on the area, flood zones, et cetera, right? But it's like, you know, the net profits on these things are insane. And so that's what I see driving it is like, everybody's got a friend that's making all this money on an Airbnb yeah. and they all want to be in on it. A lot of them can't get in on their own. So they're getting all their buddies together. These people, in my opinion, are so short-sighted, just driven by the profits of the short term, which is fine, absolutely. And this is how I... I've made a lot of money off of this type of business. So I don't, condone, you know, I'm not saying that I, I don't condone it. I don't want to take the business. I'll yeah, take it. I'll take it, you know, but what I'm seeing is the short sightedness of the fact that a lot of these people are jumping into hard money loans because they do not qualify in one way or another. They're getting, you know, let's call it 9%, 8% interest rates on a 12 month bridge, at which point at the end of the term, it's all due in full. But so, we don't know. So they could get spanked if it doesn't work out, doesn't play out the way it should. We don't know where the market's going to be in 12 months. Yeah. You know, and so the, it's like, all right, I'll pay 8%. I don't care because I'm making still 25000 a month off of this property. It doesn't matter. Right. And so I'm, I'm hoping and what I advise most of my clients is with this whole, you know, creating a bank account, an LLC, et cetera, you know, stash that money away. But I'm not seeing that. What I'm seeing is they're, they're stashing all the cash and then using it on another investment property. And they're doing this over and over and over again. My average Airbnb buyer buys at least at minimum one to two properties a month using me for financing. So, so you might want to think about it. those people who are buying homes in other areas and they're buying it for themselves. If you are finding there's a very high density of Airbnbs around you, you might want to be a little bit wary of how things could shake up because back if you you know back in 2008 and and not many there's a lot of people out there making money who who were at school or college sure and they were living off you know uh, ramen noodles and uh and and concentrate juice um and credit cards and credit cards <laughs> when when this all shook out in 2008 and that's when i stepped into the business is when i came into the business so i saw the real effects yeah. of an economic downturn 
and I saw people lose their properties and then get repossessed. And the psychology then at that time before it all shook out was, you know, I'm going to get in, I'm going to buy property, I'm going to go up in value, and then I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to be out of this before the whole Ponzi scheme house of cards collapse. And right now it's the same thing. It's like get in it and it might work out for some people, but you've got to time it. You have to time and, it. And it is it's Russian roulette. Yeah, but they're not, most of these guys are not timing it. They're, and, and the ladies, you know, I, I use guys, you know, but um, they're not timing it, man. They're just, they're getting into it. They see the profits. They think it's never going to end. And my fear is, and without being too speculative or putting my opinion in it, um, what I would, I guess, you know, like to generalize and bring to the surface is this concept of thinking a little deeper about what happens if there is an economic downturn. How many people are going to be renting? How many people can afford to go to Miami and spend anywhere from a thousand to two thousand dollars a night on a house? Yep. So if my business just took a downturn and I had to let go, this is a perfect example. I have a guy right now. Uh, he owns a title company. He specifically only worked with uh, mortgage companies who did refinances. Well, that business is damn near gone. So if all the refinance guys at houses, you know, they never shifted into the purchase game or into the cash out game and they just did rate and term refinances, they're dried up and gone. So my buddy, he's had to let go of 50% of his staff in the last five weeks, roughly. And so he's telling me, I used to go to LA at least a week out of the month and I would rent this incredible spot. I would Airbnb for like four or five grand a night because he had it like that. And he was like, now I'm not renting that. He was like, I don't even know what's going to happen in the next 12 months. So this is just one individual's mentality of what might happen. Now, when it actually does happen, or if it actually does happen, how many people are going to pull back and say, I can't go to Miami with my girls this weekend for the bachelorette party. We can't, uh, we, we can't buy this house, Yeah, you know, because there's been a slowdown or I just got let go. And so that brings back, you know, I'd love to hear your insight on like what you saw in 08. And, you know, the impact that that had, because if it plays out similarly, you're going to have a lot of people that are in these properties with debt obligations of anywhere from eight to $20,000 a month that are now sitting on monthly liabilities, not assets. Yeah. I mean, I think as things play out, there's a, there's a few sayings like rising water raises all boats. Sure. We've seen a lot of people make money, a lot of money in the last couple of years. And, and, you know, whether it was in the real estate space or the crypto space or the stock market, they get the assumptions that things are just going to keep going the way they're going. Well, there's a, there's a wake up um, and, it, and it's coming, um, which is that trees don't grow to the sky. Uh, my dad taught me that and still tells me today, don't assume that things are going to keep moving up the way that they were before. Things can stabilize. And the question now is crash, correction, or continued growth. Yeah. And I see that in 2008, when things were really, really bad, people pulled back, people were trying to hang on, and then they just lost it. Yeah. And there was correction. Now, we recovered really fast. Miami recovered astronomically quickly. I think about 18 months to absorb inventory. What I think that we have right now, and this is confuses people a lot in, in the real estate space, is that you've got different dynamics at play. You've got things that will make the, the market contract and obviously interest rates and, 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 sh- and shaky psychology. But then you've got other things such as migration, which drives people in. Exactly. And legitimate business growth. And we try to look at that really, really closely. Um, and recognizing there's still also a lot of liquidity in the system. That's one of the things that seems to act as this counter argument when people say, look, I don't see a a correction coming because there's just way too much money in the system to create it. Well, yes, it won't happen the same way as it did last time. 
And the whole sector, the whole market just doesn't do the same thing. You know, there's those conversations that we have which are don't have a general conversation about the real estate market in Miami because it doesn't make any sense. It has no place. You have to get very specific. And if you are going to look at a particular corner, and this is why we have uh, in the David Siddons group, we have territory managers who live and work in those areas. They understand the demographics within different areas of the market. So if there are pockets which are heavily investment-based, you've got pockets that are very primary. There is a robustness and there's a fragility to different price points within our market. And from what I'm gathering from this conversation, at the lower end of the spectrum, where we saw houses go from 400 to 600, 800 very, very quickly, for that group, the sub 1 million, they're a lot more reliant on mortgages and mortgage payments and, and keeping up with, with paying. And they don't have as much disposable income, as much disposable cash um, to ride through uh, a difficult time. That, if that gets out of control, they're going to be forced to have to rethink their lifestyle. And that could mean selling their home. Um, and then you kind of shift downwards. Once we get into the high level, I mean, the three to five range, we don't have a lot of inventory and there's still buyers coming right. in. And most of them are cash. And they are cash. A lot of them are cash. Although, although I think the thing to remember is that if you're a cash buyer, you're still probably going to be chasing a mortgage because rates were so low. And at the time, I did see buyers in the last year who said, you know, I don't mind overpaying a little bit on that house, paying you know 5% above ask or whatever it might be. Because my rates are so low, I look at my monthly payment, it's still absorbable, it's still good. I'm, I'm kind of robbing from Peter to pay Paul, but I'm okay with that. Now that kind of free gift is gone, and now it's more like, okay, now the rates are going to be up a little bit. And if the market's getting you know retraction, because that's what the feds are trying to do, trying to pull us back into norm, more normal behavior, yeah. um, those buyers are going to say, I'm not so willing to overpay now. So... The 27%, 30% increase in value of homes, I just don't see that this year. I think no one does. No one I know in the high-end real estate space believes we're going to see these sudden like explosions of value. I think we can see a return to norm. Supply and demand is still the underlying um, rule of thumb yeah. for any system, any economic system. And you can't get away from that. That's a driving factor here. It's yeah. huge. I mean, I was at an open house last sat- two Saturdays ago where, where were we? It was South Miami. No, it was Homestead. It was Homestead. And I, I don't venture to Homestead too often, but no, I've I, noticed. I ride down there <laughs> and then I come right back again. Exactly. And I've noticed a lot of people are going to home. I just got three contracts last week from Homestead. And I'm like, I've literally never done a deal in Homestead in the last six years. And now all of a sudden I got three contracts in a week. This is very bizarre. Why do you think Homestead? I mean, I've got a theory, but I want to hear yours first. Yeah. So I think it's because the home, like you can get so much for your dollar down in Homestead. It's yeah. it's it's kind of like buying outside of Miami, buying in, you know, I'm from Virginia. You're, you're basically getting what you get in Virginia. You get like an acre or two of land and a house, 3-3 three, three for like 500,000, you know? Really? Should I, <laughs> should I sell my house in Ponce Davis and move that? An acre for 300,000? I mean, an look, it'll cost you four look, and a half million dollars the, in Ponce Davis. Yeah, so this is wow. a... So look, I just do the lending. I'm not the real estate expert here. So I don't know like square footages and all the prices for these things. But um, I can tell you that I this specific property that I did the open house for, um, I believe it was a 3-3 three, three, and it was sitting on a, I think it was a half acre. And it was, it was a half acre and it was 440. There was a line three blocks long down this place. It was in the middle of like our opinion, nowhere, right? <laughs> it was in the middle of nowhere. There's blocks and blocks. We had over 50 people come 
And on the spot, there were 15 offers over ask. Does that strike you as like a little weird? Like when you get there and you go, this is insane. I was like, Does it feel, it any feel other day of the week, that's not the day of the open house. This place is probably a ghost town. There was, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of vehicles. It was crazy. And I'm like, you couldn't even find a place to park on this tiny ass little neighborhood. I, I've seen <laughs> that. I've seen that in this area in January, February, and March. I yeah. remember running an open house where literally it looked like we were running a, a, a block party. It was. It was. It was. <laughs> That's nuts. what it, it looks like. Everybody's lining up for a barbecue. <laughs> yeah, and and we and we ran it, and it was it was full on. And then I think over the last month or not, things come down. But what I did see is that on that end of the market that you're talking about, yeah. houses got so expensive so many people in the what I call the primary market. So yeah. our primary markets are like Pinecrest, Coral Gables, Coconut Grove, South Miami, High Pines. You know, um, these are the, the areas where families move to because it's sure. where the best schools are. But the reality is, and then they're going to work in the, the cause, whether they're working in Coral Gables or in Dadeland area, whether they're working in Kendall, or where, wherever they're working. Sure. But houses got so much, so high. And, and sometimes I look at these reports that come out through Realtor.com and Zillow and these other sites, and they talk about, they talk about the real estate market softening and they talk about you know, the median house price. And, and I look at it and I'm like, this has zero relevance to, to these areas that I'm talking about because they're the median house price that they're promoting or talking about somewhere in, in the US is, or even within Florida, yeah. like 450,000, yeah, 500,000, no, which it, it, you can't even buy a garage in, in these areas <laughs> for, for that amount of money. You, you could buy a parking spot. Yeah, pretty much. We give you one parking space uh, and, and maybe a tandem if you're really lucky. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then what happens is these families move here, all this migration that's moving in here. They can't afford these areas. Mm -hmm. So they start to move out of the city and they start to move further afield because they don't really have much choice. And there is obviously, look, there's the core staff and within the areas that I work, you've got people, the hedge fund crowd, the private banking sector, the entrepreneurs, the, the, you know, all the different, uh, the one percenters, the reason that people move down because that 1% tax saving drive are coupled with a bunch of other variables that, sure. that we'll get into in another conversation. And they they come in, and of course, they come in from California and New York, and they have deep pockets, and they're the top 1%. But then there's all these support staff. Like Amazon have a place here. Google have a place here. All these other, all these other big companies, organizations, have a place down here in South Florida and in Miami and Fort Lauderdale. And um, they have these staff that can't afford, they can't afford to spend... $2 million on a 1,700 square foot house. Um, they simply can't afford to do that. So they, they move further south. And I understand what's, what's going on there. And I think that Miami is going to continue to grow. But I think we have to be aware of how fast it has grown yeah. and the realities of those who are moving as primary and those who are just coming into buyers and investments. And, oh, and, I, and I think that's, that's exactly it. So I, I'm seeing a migration out of Miami into these other sectors, like you said, of Homestead or up north and, you know, northwest Broward, not as far as, you know, Weston's obviously a different story, um, you know, because there's still high-priced homes there and yeah. southwest ranches. But, you know, talking about the outskirts, outskirts, where you're seeing properties that are still around a half a million or 600,000, I'm seeing a lot of families move out there, even for renters, because the, the, the fact of the matter is because of how the market has shifted and inflation has hit us and the prices have increased and the rates have gone up, People from Miami generally cannot afford to live in Miami anymore because our, you know, median income 
I would imagine here it has to be like 40, 50 K, yeah. you know, and you're not, what are you going to do with that? I mean, you, you can't even get a one, one in downtown or Brickell for less than 3,500. Well, anymore. you mentioned something else that just came into my head, which is the whole refi situation. And, and one of the big problems that we've got right now, one of the big standoffs that we've got, and we've had it for, I think, the beginning of the year that we would go and knock on doors all the time. And we do, because we're farming, we're asking people who sure. want to sell. And, and the, same co- the same answer would come back, which is, um, you can offer me whatever you like, but where am I going to go? What am I going to buy next? And, and if they do buy right now, if they do sell and they do buy, and I had this conversation with a, with a client this morning. He said, you know what? I got a really good rate for my condo. Mm-hmm. And and now I'm being offered like an agent called me and said, you know what, we'll give your guy a million dollars net, you know, ec- without commissions, without all the other closing costs, You're like a million dollars in his pocket, more than what he was in it for, which is somewhere around 60 percent, 50 percent of what he originally paid. Um, and he said, you know what, it's very enticing, but I'm at a zero sum game. If I then go out and try and buy something else, I'm, I'm probably going to have a hard time buying it, finding it. Um, and then if I do find it, two things are going to happen. One, my property taxes are going to go up, so that's going to whack me. And two, my financing um, interest rates are going to go up, and that's going to whack. That's going to be a second smack. Absolutely. And then, and then, so w- why would it make sense for me to sell? So now we have this standoff that's going on, and so obviously one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to find a solution for those clients. And we're starting to see people who are close to the age of retirement who don't need to stay in Miami. They're moving way out. They're like moving. I've seen gross of, we've seen areas like Vera Beach and, and Pompano and other areas that you wouldn't have thought of, like much, much further up into uh, Indian River County, areas that um, people will now look at to stay in South Florida because they like the lifestyle down here. But they just can't afford to stay in, in Miami, Dade or Broward. Um, to the same quality of life that they had. And, and, it, and it happens through the entire level. We're not talking about million-dollar properties here. I'm talking about clients who will say, I have $5 million and there's nothing for me. There's nothing for me that I like in the area. So um, if anything, the question now might be, because the feds are trying to control the, the growth, that maybe it might, will the lowering interest rates open up? And this is something that people ask me. Will the raised interest rates open up those markets for more sales? Will we see more inventory come in because of that? And um, what's the the back and forth involved? Sure. And man, you brought up some really good points. Um, And it's hard to answer that, at least with any type of certainty, because to be quite honest, it's a catch-22. Like you said, we've got people who don't want to sell, or maybe they do, but they don't know where they're going to go, right? And so I had this conversation with my parents recently because I'm like, you guys need to get out of Virginia and, you know, come down here and you're going to save on property taxes. You're going to save on, uh, you know, because they get billed every month for like everything they own, automobiles, everything. And so I'm like, there, there's just such a more economical benefit to you coming here. And they're like, so what are we going to do? We're going to sell at a high, but then we're going to have to pay a high and get a high. You know, if we pay cash, we st- we're paying, you know, over ask. And then if we get a mortgage, which they don't really need, um, you know, we're going to get a crazy rate. And now we're going to have a monthly payment again. So you've got that side of the coin. And then you also have the rising interest making it almost, I don't want to say unaffordable, but less affordable 
for people who have a budget. Undigestible, maybe. Exactly, undigestible for a monthly payment that just went up, like on a $4 million house, you know, the payment probably went up 4,000 bucks, right? So you've now got these people where they can afford to buy. There's now more inventory, but it's up in the air. It's up in the air whether they want to do it or not. It's going to come down specifically to what these people are willing to pay and if they're willing to take the hit. Um, and so what I've seen is like roughly one out of, and you could probably attest to this one out of every four purchases are probably cash. Right. And, and it yeah, could be a little higher in my sector is probably higher. Yeah. To be honest with you, I think the sector that I deal with, which is really that two plus range. And again, oh, when okay. I'm personally dealing with, with levels, it's, it's, it's higher. It's probably like three um, and a half out of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we did a hundred and 49 transactions in 2021. It was crazy. It was like one every two days. And, and I, I do not honestly remember out of those 149, how many, it was so few, how many were reliant on getting a mortgage to let the deal go through? That's I wouldn't assume, I wouldn't worry about almost any of those 149, whether it was going to close because of finance, because they, were, they might have been chasing it, but they didn't need to. They had the cash. Um, but again... And I, I don't honestly, I don't, I don't think that that sector of the market will be as dramatically impacted um, because like, like you've said, the majority of those are cash purchases. Um, they're strong. You know, it's not like 2008 or leading up to that where everybody was getting a loan on everything. And most of these people weren't qualified. I mean, we have a very strong market that has an influx of cash uh, and like you said, a reduced inventory. So I see strength in the Miami market. I see strength from owning it for your personal uh, or I see strength for owning it as an investor. Now, um, where, as we've spoken about, I see a bit of an, a raise for caution is in some of these, you know, Airbnb situations or, uh, you know, some of these rental situations short term if there were some type of downturn in the market. Um, however, from a standpoint of buying, I think it's still a strong time to buy. Uh, I think we're not going to really see a dramatic reduction of buyers coming into our market because everybody wants to be here right now. Um, but what I am seeing is people are going to have to make sacrifices if they are getting a mortgage. They're going to have to make a sacrifice on if they're willing to pay a little bit over ask, how much, if so, because their mortgage payment has gone up. So they've got to have the cash to not only come up with the difference over the purchase price, but they're going to have to nine out of 10 times in this point in time come to the table with more cash because it didn't appraise. Yep. And then they're going to have a higher monthly payment. So if you're getting a mortgage in this environment, be prepared and you're going to have to make some sacrifices in order to get what you want. But I don't think it's always going to be that way. So factor in the next 12 months, factor in where things are going to help you recognize worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, and we'll, 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 we'll be reporting on this. I mean, this is the one thing that we do. This whole, this whole thing, this whole process of doing these podcasts is to educate the market Absolutely. and educate them early on what's happening so you can stay ahead of the game. Because... If you act by the time it gets out into the mainstream media, it's too late. You're done. It's it's way too late. Too late. And then you're just going to. Unfortunately, be that's where about ninety nine percent of the players are are at. Is they wait till it's in the media, and by then it's too late. Yeah. You know. So um, I I think it is very important to look at the next twelve months. Where do we think we're going to be? But also not being as short sighted. Also thinking about maybe not just the next twelve months, but what's going to happen in the next twelve years. And if you look at it from that perspective of as an investor and even as a homeowner in general, even if it's your primary residence, where's the market going to be in 12 years? I mean, look at where it was five years ago. Winwood was practically the hood. 
You know, now it's this massive development. We have, what, 52 buildings going up between now and 2024. So Miami is growing. Miami is booming. Miami is not going anywhere anytime soon unless there's some crazy flood or something, you know, water (laughs) levels. But, um, you know, Miami is a strong market. People want to be here. Developers see it. Um, Everybody sees it. And I, I think that it is a strong market to buy. Now, if what I what I would urge people to consider is if you are going to get a mortgage and you're going to get a higher interest rate, don't just look at the short term, but think about, you know, in a year or two when rates come back down, refinancing, because that's going to the rates are not going to stay like this forever. Historically, if you look at it, rates didn't stay at 18 percent all through the 80s. They actually reduced significantly by the end of the 80s. So it was a refinance boom at that time. And that's where you see these chop shops and the refi houses all come back into business. And it's like a bonanza for these people because everybody and their mother is refining, refinancing because they could reduce their payment anywhere from 800 bucks to even several thousand on a high end. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of that in the coming years. I think that's something to look forward to. Um, but I also think, especially for these cash buyers, when there's blood in the streets. That's a time to buy. And if there is any type of correction, I think you're going to see an onslaught of buyers hit the market. And I think we'll see the same thing happen all over again, where there's going to be a reduction will in inventory. Happen quickly, just like it did in 08, within yep. 18 months, we went from 100 months of inventory in certain sectors down to like 12. And, and we looked at this and said, we've got 10, month, 10 years supply of inventory across this market. How, how on earth are we going to keep 10 years of supply and bring it down to normal. Well, guess what? It happened, it felt like almost overnight. Uh, in 08, it was disaster. 2010, 2011, it just got absorbed. Yeah. And then the process started all over again. They started building. But long story is that when you get into any investment or if you get into any asset class, if you have a short-term six-month view of the market that you're in, there's a good chance you can get spanked if you don't get your timing right. Absolutely. But if you expand your your horizon, which is what you're saying, to a more realistic period of time, then you're going to look at the big picture better and you're going to realize the ebbs and flows, how things are, and you're going to realize that the underlying realities of Miami is that it's not a big city. There is a lot of demand. There's a lot of growth. It is legitimizing itself as a hub. And look at our other articles with the amount of hedge funds that have moved in and other banks and other businesses that are actually legitimately stapled here for what seems to feel like a permanent position. Um, It's going to move our markets forward. It's going to grow our markets. It's going to grow the values of properties over time. We're going to have a little bit of movement, um, but don't try and time it within two or three months. Just, you know, as we always say, just pick up the phone, have a conversation with us. This is what we do. And, And each individual needs to look at their individual situation with their house, their condo, their buying and weigh it up. Exactly. and understand the risks and the variables involved. Yeah. So I always say that within our industry, we could write books about oh, the sure. lunacy and the craziness that goes on. And everyone jokes about South Florida as being a kind of a, you know, it has, it's had its wild moments, let's put it like that. So with that in mind, and, and in that vein of thinking, I want you to share one of your crazy stories with me. Because everyone's got a crazy story. And I know you've oh got a crazy God. story. I have more stories than you could. Well, you probably have crazy stuff too. Man, there's so many things that come to mind. Um, I could give you about five right now. G- g- just, 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 just g- well, g- g- <laughs> give me one. Give me one. Right, so la- last week, um, we're leading up for the holiday. I've got a client. His three-day trid CD goes out. So essentially, it's a CD that goes out to basically start the three-day clock for closing. 
This guy's closing scheduled for Friday. The title company's on board. The closer's already balancing docs. Everything's good. This guy, I get a call from the underwriter. Hey, um, we just did our uh, our credit report and our verification of employment for your client. Um, verification of employment came back great. Were you aware that he bought a Lamborghini Urus yesterday? What a dipshit. Two days before closing. So I called this guy and I'm like, his debt to income ratio is destroyed. $3,800 a month was his payment. And I call this guy and I'm like, hey, um, I have a question for you. What was going through your mind when you walked <laughs> into the Lamborghini dealership and you bought a Urus? And he was like, oh, yeah, dude, this thing is sick. I'm, I'll, I'm happy to pick you up after closing. We'll take it for a ride. I'm like, there is no closing. You don't qualify for this loan anymore. You bought a Urus two days before closing. And he was like, that's it. Look. No, you got to explain to the underwriter something. He was like, I'm renting this thing out on Turo and I'm making a ton of money off of it. Like this is his whole business model. He came up with this idea. That oh, he, the luxury car rental. So I've like, heard about this. So he's like, I'm going to buy the Urus. It's 3,800 bucks a month, but I'm going to rent it for like several hundred dollars a day on Turo. And so the concept makes sense. But dude, you did it two days before your closing. And he thought by signing the three-day trade CD, he was, he was closed. But the closing was set for Friday. So we have to go through, now the whole loan's being restructured. I had to get an extension. The, the sellers want like an extra hundred grand in the earnest money deposit to like give them another extension. And it's crazy. Like it's just lunacy. How old, <laughs> how old was this guy? He was in his late 20s. Really? Okay, so I think that these kind of stories, and I think these are good lessons for those people out there. Well, firstly, yeah. don't go out there and buy a Lamborghini Urus or any kind of supercar. Until after you have closed and funded. <laughs> Common sense. I, but what happens is that we've seen so many of these professionals. I'm going to call them professionals. And it's yeah. kind of a polite word, but I think that's a very loose term. Um, these individuals come in and they want to lead the lifestyle. Oh yeah, and, for sure. And there's a, there's a Warren Buffett saying, you don't know who's swimming naked till the tide goes out. There's a That's lot it. of psychology that is very similar to the psychology in 2008, which is, you know, if I do this, I make money. If I do that, I make money. And it's okay. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fly as close to the sun as I possibly can get exactly. without, without melting my wings. It's um, Drew, love That's that wild. story. Oh, yeah. I, and I've got another one. Okay. I, this one just happened last week also. I've got a closing. This this loan was scheduled to close on Thursday. Was it Thursday? It was also last Friday. It was scheduled to close. It was a new construction development for an Airbnb buyer. He buys a lot of Airbnbs. This guy's he knows what he's doing. So he goes under a new development. It was uh, $2.8 million. Not a big deal. When they do the initial appraisal, obviously the place is still under construction. So before closing, we need to do a final inspection. It's called a 1004D. And so tell me why the appraiser goes out to do This is the final condition we need to close. I've got title. I've got insurance. I've got all the conditions from the client. Everything is submitted. All I need to clear to close this file is a 1004D final inspection. I get a call from the appraisal management company and the underwriter telling me the appraiser just went out to the property. It's still under construction. I said, what do you mean it's under construction? I got the certificate of occupancy two weeks ago. I said, that's impossible. Sure enough, I called a client to ask what's going on. This guy hasn't even closed on this property yet. He sent a general contractor out to the property to blow out the wall and build three extra rooms because he's going to shoot up his profits on Airbnb. And I'm like, why would you not wait until after you close? He hasn't closed on it and he's he already demoing. Demoed the place, added three extra rooms to the property. Like, I understand it from a long-term profitable, like, standpoint, but he has not, he doesn't own this property. 
It's insanity. So like we had to do this whole workaround. Thank God the appraiser went out and he didn't somehow by God's grace, this guy didn't realize there was three extra bedrooms in the house. He just saw that it was cleaned up and it was good. And he just checked the box and we got the deal done a week late, but we still got it done. But that could have easily gone the other way. And this guy had almost a half a million in earnest money deposit that could have been at stake. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's all I can say. Wow. Drew. Um, thank you yeah, for doing this. this really appreciate it. This I appreciate great. you having me on. Um, anytime. We'll, we'll bring you back in. Thank you. Um, and as always, you know, uh, follow us. Um, see our information below. We see Drew's information below. Um, and stay tuned for another David Siddons group podcast video um, that we will come up with a name for. Thanks again <laughs> for watching. Cheers. Thank you.